So as we uh, were preparing for this week, we knew we'd be on the back side of General Conference and, uh, and thought that it gave us a unique opportunity to remind us about who we are as we gather as the people of God. Um, whenever uh, we gather to come to communion, you know, one of the things we do before we come to this place is, is we confess our sins and receive forgiveness for that. It's uh, established in Scripture, and we live that out. So I'm going to invite you to join with me in the prayer of confession. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Take a moment for your own silent prayer of confession. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. So as I said in the, the email uh, that went out to you uh, this week, I'm going to share with you a letter from our bishop. Um, I've made a few little grammatical corrections in it in a couple places. Uh, he, we were all pretty tired when we came home, and uh, he promised us he would write this letter, and I promised him I would read it to you. Um, <clears throat> so this is uh, from Bishop Schnazy. Dear members, pastors, and friends of the Rio Texas Conference, Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you anxiously followed the proceedings from the special call session of General Conference in St. Louis. These past few days have been emotionally difficult for every one of us. My heart broke watching fellow United Methodists fail to find a new path forward that breaks through the impasse that we've experienced in our church over the past 47 years over LGBTQ inclusion. We had many difficult and public conversations about issues that are tied to our identities as United Methodists, as Christians, and as children of God. For those of you who have not followed the details, I offer a brief explanation of what happened over four days in St. Louis. After a full day of prayer, the 860 delegates from across the globe, global church received the report of the commission on a way forward, including the One Church Plan, the Connectional Conference Plan, and the traditional plan. The General Conference decided to give priority focus to the traditional plan and the One Church Plan. After two days of debate, the One Church Plan was defeated and the traditional plan was supported by a vote of 53 to 47%. The traditional plan keeps the current language regarding homosexuality in the Book of Discipline and streamlines the processes to enforce penalties for clergy violations related to marriage and ordination of LGBTQ persons. A number of elements of the traditional plan, however, were found to have been unconstitutional by the Judicial Council, and the whole plan will be reviewed again at the Council's meeting in April. This means some or all of what was may approved may, actually, may not actually take effect. During the weeks to come, I'll be meeting with various groups to process what the decisions mean for us as an annual conference. So what does all this mean for the mission of Christ through the churches and people of the Rio Texas Conference? 
First, I continue to count it an honor to serve as a bishop of the United Methodist Church, and especially of the Rio Texas Conference. My task is to help us order our life together as a conference and to focus our work on the mission of Christ. No matter how you may feel about the decisions of the General Conference or whether you agree with or are hurt by the outcome, we are still in ministry together. All of us are valued parts of the body of Christ. Our lives and ministries are interwoven by the Holy Spirit and not by decisions made at General Conference. As a bishop, I offer all my prayers and efforts to include and foster the ministries of every person seeking to serve Christ. No matter how you are feeling about the conversations going on at the global level of our denomination, I want you to know that every one of us and everyone, every one of us and everyone we serve are of infinite value and matchless worth in God's eyes. Second, I ask you not to underestimate the pain that is felt by many of our brothers and sisters at this moment. Many people feel hurt and excluded by decisions made at General Conference. Please pray for those most personally affected. Within every congregation in our conference, there are people for whom the conversation is not an abstract debate, but rather a conversation that affects lives dear to us. Sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, co-workers, neighbors. A great number of people from the LGBTQ community are committed, faithful United Methodists. This is a tender time in the life of our church, a time especially to bear with one another in love with all humility and gentleness. That's from Ephesians 4.2. Third, we still have much important work to do together. While we were gathered in St. Louis, the need for a faithful United Methodist witness in Rio, Texas has only grown greater. Across our annual conference, there are multitudes that need to hear and witness the love of God in their lives and communities. While we debated plans and passed motions, our members and churches have been continuing the good work of reaching out to new people in new ways. Our disaster response network continues to bring hope to those whose lives have been devastated by Hurricane Harvey and other natural disasters. Our churches and partners continue to respond to the humanitarian crisis at the border. Our congregations continue to seek fresh expressions of the gospel, reaching out into our communities and experimenting with new ways to go where people are to connect them with the good news of Christ. I realize that for some, these words will ring hollow. Many of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters question whether there is truly a place for them in our church, and many of our traditionalist brothers and sisters feel anxious. But I want to invite everyone, whether or not you agree with the decisions of General Conference, to help us forge a way forward together in Christ as an annual conference. And he quotes from Galatians 6, 9, Let's not get tired of doing good, because in time we'll have a harvest if we don't give up. And then from John 13, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Join me in prayer that we might continue to bear witness to the love of Jesus Christ in our churches, communities, and throughout Rio, Texas. Yours in Christ, Bishop Robert Schnazy of the Rio, Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church. We asked the bishop to write this uh, letter and put it out when we met with him 
uh, the last day of General Conference. And uh, you should know that he worked on the commission uh, on a way forward and uh, put a tremendous amount of his own uh, time, effort, energy uh, into working with that. And uh, so this was a, a difficult event for him in more ways than one. And I would ask you to hold him in prayer uh, as he is uh, kind of figuring out what to do at this point in time and, and how we move forward from this place. Um, this was a very uh, emotionally bruising and battering kind of event. Uh, we, every morning as we uh, gathered, uh, we walked through a gauntlet of, of different lobbying groups. And so uh, we got called by uh, one of the groups that we passed through, uh, called us perverts, and the other one called us murderers as we walked into the building. Uh, so we got to run through that every morning as we gathered uh, and came together in that time and a place. And uh, in spite of that, I will tell you that uh, our delegation out of this annual conference uh, dealt with each other with a tremendous amount of respect uh, and a lot of graciousness. Uh, we had dinner pretty much every night and uh, shared with one another how we were doing. Uh, uh, and, and most of the delegates on the floor uh, actually uh, dealt with each other very graciously. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there, there is hope in that. I will tell you also that one of the things that uh, is a reality is that we are learning and having to wrestle with is that we are no longer simply an American church. We are now a global church. And as we gathered, uh, there was about four and a half million Methodists uh, scattered across Africa, Eurasia, Russia, uh, who, if we had made some of the changes suggested, uh, would have found themselves in a legal position where they would have immediately had to close their doors or withdraw to another denomination. And so their delegates that came really were not in a, um, uh, of a mind to negotiate on any of the points. Uh, and that's a reality that we're going to have to wrestle with as we move forward. I do not know if there will be a, um, a uh, legislative type uh, solution to this. Uh, we don't really, everybody's going to have to kind of figure that out. And there's a lot of conversation around that. Um, what I do know is that on Saturday, when we gathered for the first day, uh, all of us came into that space. Uh, all of us, reserves, uh, observers, everybody was allowed down on the main floor. Uh, we had a day of prayer with one another, and we prayed in different sessions. Uh, and at the end of that day, we all gathered at the table, and we celebrated communion together. Uh, because in the Christian faith, this is the one place we have always come together. Uh, if you read the history of the Christian church, one of the things you will understand and, and pick up pretty quickly is uh, that we have never been united as an institution or an organization or a structure. Uh, we begin dividing up early on. You know, we had the Jerusalem church, in, which was primarily Jewish, and we had churches in Corinth and Ephesus and Thessalonica, which were primarily Gentile. And so early on, there were discussions and divisions and wrestling about how we do things and how that was going to happen. Uh, that continued through the church's history. Uh, the Orthodox Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, was the first large institution. Uh, but out of that, the, the Syrian Orthodox Church came. Out of that, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, you had the Coptic churches and so forth developing in Africa. Uh, and all of those were different bodies uh, that gathered. And if you read through the history, you'll, it's a history of different ones of us going different directions and different kinds of things uh, around the world. Uh, what has united us has not been institution, organization, structure, or language. Uh, what, what has united us has been Christ. Uh, it is in Christ that we find our unity and in our relationship with Christ, and specifically when we come to this table, uh, because this is the one ritual that we all share most fully with one another. Uh, so this morning I'm going to walk through this, this thanks, the, the, the liturgy of communion, uh, because what I want you to hear uh, is that the great thanksgiving that we repeat is basically a recitation of the redemption story of the Christian faith. 
And the one that we use and the one that's used around the world, uh, even though they are in different languages, are not that radically different from one another. Uh, this is still the place we gather, whether we agree with one another or not, uh, whether we are in the same place or not, whether we speak the same language or not, whether we have the same culture or not. Uh, this is the one place that we all come together. So as we begin this, I'm going to ask you to be with me in prayer for a moment. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit and rest upon us. Draw us together in, in the unity of your presence around this table this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, so the communion starts early in the, in the life of the church. In Luke's gospel, uh, we read, He took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is written somewhere around 60 AD, about six decades after the death and the resurrection of Christ. But even earlier than that, uh, you have Paul writing to the church in Corinth. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant, my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is written 25 to 30 A.D., two to three decades after the death and the resurrection of Christ. And, and Paul is hearing this from someone else, uh, which means that at this point in time, this was already an established tradition of the church, uh, almost immediately. Uh, so this, this part ritual of, of coming to the table uh, goes back to the very beginnings of our worship, very beginnings of the Christian church, and has moved through millennia uh, substantially in this form uh, that, that we are going to do this morning. Uh, the ritual starts with a passage called the Sursum Corda. Uh, so when you see the part that's uh, up there in, uh, in the bright white, that is your part to repeat. Uh, the Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Those of you who know Latin will uh, recognize that Sursum Corda literally means lifting up your heart. That's literally what it means. It's a, a little refrain. And as we lift up our hearts, we move uh, from that into praise. Uh, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our as I move through this, you're going to note on these slides, there's going to be scripture uh, notations on here. Uh, these are the places from where the words of this liturgy are taken. Uh, so uh, as I move through it, what I want you to understand is that, you know, somebody didn't just sit down and write this stuff up or make it up, uh, but all of this is drawn directly out of these passages of Scripture as we walk through this. Uh, so now having opened our hearts to praise, the next little piece is, continues in that vein. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. It's a remembrance of, of who we are and who God is, that God is creator and we are creature, and this is who we are praising as we begin this time together. You formed us in your image and breathed into us the breath of life. When we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. We're now beginning to retell the redemption story from, from Genesis where God kneels on the ground and forms us out of clay and breathes life into us to, to the story of the Garden of Eden where we turned our back on God and yet God went with us when we left the garden and clothed us and continued to protect us. And understanding that God's love is with us even when our love is inadequate, God's love is never inadequate. 
This moves into uh, the Exodus story. You delivered us from captivity, made covenant to be our sovereign God, and spoke to us through your prophets. Uh, God bringing the people Israel out of Egypt and into the desert where on Mount Sinai, uh, the Mosaic covenant takes place where God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Uh, and then God's continuing to speak into his people through the prophets across all the ages. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name. We join their unending hymn. Our reference to Hebrews 12, we talk about the great cloud of witnesses, uh, all the faithful who surround us in this life and in the next. And in Revelation 7, we're in the new city, the holy Jerusalem at the end of the age. All of God's saints surround the throne and sing praise to God. And then we have this great hymn of praise. Join with me. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, this is kind of a mashup of, of, of praise of, of the Messiah from Old Testament and New Testament. And probably you're hearing it in connection to Palm Sunday. Uh, because this is where this comes in most. The word Hosanna means you have saved us. Uh, and when it says Hosanna in the highest, it means you have saved us to the utmost. Uh, and it's a, it's a proclamation. Uh, we read it oftentimes on Palm Sunday as Jesus enters in and proclaims the Messiah. Uh, but it's a song celebrating that Jesus has come or the Messiah has come and, and that we have been saved by him. Now the story moves into the more specific Jesus part of the redemption story. Holy are you and blessed is your son, Jesus Christ. Your spirit anointed him to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to announce that the time had come when you would save your people. Uh, this remembers back to when Jesus uh, begins his ministry. He goes to the synagogue in Nazareth. He unrolls the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And from Isaiah 61, he reads that this is who the Messiah will be. Uh, and, and he reads this in light of, of the people that are sitting there. And then at the end of that, he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. A proclamation that he is indeed the Messiah. Now, now, in all honesty, the folks in Nazareth who had known him since he was a little boy didn't all receive that news well. But nonetheless, that's a pro it is a proclamation, a self-proclamation that he understands himself to be the Messiah. And Matthew's gospel tells us he fulfilled that. He healed the sick, fed the hungry, ate with sinners. He, he fulfilled what he said he was going to do. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. This passage reaches into a number of places to talk to us about the fact that in Jesus' baptism, we're introduced to baptism by water and the Holy Spirit, not simply water, and that in Jesus, offering of himself is given to us the resurrection, the redemption, the gift of new life. And so this story reminds us that it, it, it's through these critical actions in the life of Christ that we find the redemption we seek through his baptism and through his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. We are released from sin, but we are also given the gift of new life. When the Lord Jesus ascended, he promised to be with us always in the power of your word and Holy Spirit. Uh, these are the, are the pieces of the story where, where Jesus is speaking to the disciples as he gets ready to leave. Uh, in, in the Acts, he's, he's preparing to ascend, and the disciples are saying, when's the kingdom going to come? He says, it's not your business to know that, but, but go into Jerusalem and wait there until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and gives you power. 
Uh, in Matthew's gospel, we have the Great Commission, uh, where he commissions them to go and, and baptize and, and, you know, all nations, and says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. All authority has been given to me. In John's gospel, he breathes on the disciple and breathes into them the Holy Spirit and sends them out. So this is the commissioning, that, that God commissions the church to go out and to share the gospel everywhere around the world, empowered by the Holy Spirit, accompanied by the presence of Christ. And then we move into what are called the words of institution, uh, basically remembering uh, those passages I read earlier. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, Christ took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then we have an offering of ourselves. <laughs> and so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, who's offered himself for us, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Now, this understanding that, that because of Christ, we are able to give ourselves and offer ourselves to God, not, not as, a, as, a, as a sacrifice of death, but as a sacrifice of life. And then we enter into um, what is called the memorial acclamation. It's based on 1 Corinthians 15. Say this with me. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. This little short three phrase comes from around the 300s in the life of the church and is, if you will, the, the summary of the, the very kernel of the Christian faith, that Christ died and Christ rose and Christ will come again. And it's repeated over and over in every liturgy in every Christian church across the globe. From there we move into the prayer of consecration. So let us be in a spirit of prayer. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Amen. In this prayer we ask God's Holy Spirit to come and consecrate these elements. That word consecrate means to, it's to set it aside, to make it sacred, to reserve it for God. And, and it's understood in different ways in different traditions. Uh, in some traditions, the understanding is when that prayer comes, the, the Holy Spirit descends and the, and the bread actually becomes the body of Christ. The, the wine actually becomes the blood of Christ. In other traditions, it's, it's, it's a mixed kind of thing where the bread is partially bread and partially the body of Christ. Uh, the wine is partially wine and partially the blood of Christ. In some traditions, it's a memorial. Uh, the Spirit comes and helps us remember uh, what it is that Christ did that night. Uh, within our Wesleyan tradition, uh, we talk about the real presence of God, that the Holy Spirit, when we pray this, the Holy Spirit actually indwells these elements. And although they are not physically changed, the presence of the living Holy Spirit of God rests upon them and indwells within them. So that when you receive communion, uh, you're not just taking a piece of bread or the juice, you're actually taking into yourself the living Spirit of God and receiving that all over again, just as we did in the Genesis story when God breathed it into us the first time. That's why uh, when we finish communion, we treat these elements with respect. 
Some of them will be saved and used for other communion services, uh, perhaps to those in, uh, at home or in hospice or in the hospital where uh, the elements will be taken out to them. Uh, the elements that we don't use in that way, we will return to the ground. <laughs> they don't get thrown away. Uh, they're returned to the ground. They're treated with respect in the same way you would treat the respect of the body of a loved one that died. Uh, you return it to the ground. And so because these now have the living presence of God in them, they are not simply discarded, but they are returned to the ground as a sign of respect for the presence of God. Having prayed for the Holy Spirit to come and indwell these, there then is a prayer of unity at the end. Join with me. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, one in ministry to all the world, until Christ comes in final victory, and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Amen. Now, one of the things I'm going to point out to you is this is based on the passages you see above there. And when you look at those, especially John 17 and Revelation, those are written long before there's any institution, any organization called the church. Uh, this isn't about an organization. It's not about institutions. It's not about even all being in agreement with each other. It's about the fact that we are all connected because we are all related to Christ. And he is the one that calls us together and unites us and calls us to this table and unites us. Uh, it, it's not a prayer for structural organizational unity. It's a prayer for unity in the Holy Spirit that we enter into. And having prayed for that unity to exist, even as Christ prayed that for us, we end with a final doxology. The word doxology, incidentally, means words of praise, literally, uh, to speak a word of praise. And so we end with these words, through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit and your Holy Church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Let the people say amen. 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 I'm going to invite communion servers to come forward. When we gather at this table, uh, we proclaim this. Uh, this is the central ritual of the Christian church and has been for thousands of years in all places, at all times, and in every culture. Uh, the table is not the table of Bethany. It's not a Methodist table. It's the table of Jesus Christ. And so the invitation is for all who profess faith in him and who live and move and have their being in him to come to this table. Uh, it is not limited just to those that we, uh, we uh, find uh, match our Methodist background or part of this congregation. Uh, this is for anyone who wants to come and be in the presence of God. And that invitation is given every time. We receive this by intention in this congregation. Uh, if you go to different places, you'll find there's a lot of different ways to do communion. Uh, and especially if you travel uh, into uh, other kinds of uh, uh, faith bodies or other parts of the world, uh, you would be well advised to wait and see what they do before you do anything. Uh, because you may find it very surprising the way in which they receive communion. Uh, but we receive by intention here, this goes back again to the 300s, where you're given the piece of bread and you then dip it in the cup before you receive it. And once you've received, you're invited to be at the altar rail in prayer for as long as you wish. If you would like for the prayer ushers to join with you, if you'll hold your hands out with your palms upward, that's the signal they have to come join with you in that time of prayer. And any offering you leave on the rail or in the basket in the back will go to our benevolence fund, which is what we use to help folks who come to us in financial difficulty. This is the table where the followers of Christ have gathered for millennia, in all times, in all places, in all languages. Uh, this is the central event that binds us together in the presence of Christ. And in the name of Christ, you're invited to come.